Welcome to the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. Thank you for joining me today in the podcast series that explores everything to do with experience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another wonderful episode of the Business of Experience. I'm extremely privileged and humbled today to have John Hagel join us to talk about what we see as the future of business and how today's crisis might serve as a catalyst for fundamental change. So welcome, John. Thank you, Rodney. It's a pleasure to be here. So for everybody, John is co-chairman of the Deloitte Center of the Edge, also obviously a very recognized management consultant, speaker, and author. And obviously, I've done a huge disservice there, John, in giving you that introduction. So maybe as a way of starting, could you give everybody else that might not be so aware of your background and experience a little bit more insight to uh, to your uh, work? Sure. Um, I guess at a high level, I've been actually in Silicon Valley now for 40 years. This is my 40th year anniversary. Um, and I've done many things here in the Valley. I've been the founder of two tech startups. I uh, was a senior executive, for those who remember that far back, with a company uh, called Atari in the video game business. Um, most of my career has been in business strategy. I was uh, started my career at Boston Consulting Group, uh, spent 16 years as a partner with McKinsey and Company, a leader in their strategy practice. And uh, 13 years ago, was recruited into Deloitte to set up this new center, the Center for the Edge. And um, on the side, I've written seven books. I'm a compulsive, obsessive writer. More to come, but uh, seven books so far. Thank you. No, that's fantastic, John. And they're great uh, works, uh, each and every one of them. So maybe I think, you know, we're living as, as everybody says, and everybody no doubt will continue to say as we record this, in an unprecedented time. I suppose what opening views can you share with the listeners on where you think we are in this crisis and what this crisis really represents in the sense of business? Well, I'd say the crisis is actually a, a particularly uh, strong indicator of the changes, but our view is we've been in a, a early stages of what we call the big shift, which is transforming the global economy now for uh, at least a couple of decades. And uh, this this current crisis, I think, brings to the front some of the challenges uh, that the, uh, the changes are creating, which is the, the viral spread, because we're much more of a global economy and have much more connectivity, uh, things spread much more rapidly. And that can be both good in the sense of new ideas and knowledge can spread much more rapidly, but also viruses spread, <laughs> spread more rapidly. And so you've got this paradox, which we believe is center, central to the, the big shift. Um, which is this notion that on the one side, we're creating exponentially expanding opportunity. The forces that are at work are allowing us to create much more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would ever have been possible before. At the same time, it's creating mounting performance pressure on all of us in the form of intensifying competition, accelerating pace of change. So there's pressure and opportunity at the same time. 
I think that's really interesting. I suppose one of the ways that I've been looking at, at a number of things, and, and probably not in the sense of the short term, but more the longer term, and that is that I think largely speaking, and I'd be very interested on your insights on this, that I still see the majority of business, I suppose, working more in a construct uh, which we can pull the thread back to scientific management than really embracing more core concepts of how we deal with a, a complex system and how we need to create an adaptive system that's really central around humans and the role of humans. What are, what are your views to how we shift out of the constraint of, of the last century to really embrace the opportunities of this century? Yeah, I think you, you've hit a, a key point. I mean, there are many ways we have of characterizing this big shift. But one way is that the institutions that we've built in the what we call the industrial era is are broadly driven by a model of scalable efficiency. The key to success for those institutions is how to become more and more efficient at scale. And in more stable environments, that actually created enormous wealth for many participants. I think the challenge is in a world that's more rapidly changing with more uncertainty, the very same approaches that created increasing efficiency in the past are now creating increasing inefficiency and fragility. And we, the way we characterize is we need to move to institutions that are built around a model of scalable learning. In a world that's rapidly changing, one of the most valuable things you can do is to learn faster. So if you're not learning faster, you're going to get marginalized. And that requires a very different approach to how we manage people and uh, the businesses that we're, we operate in. Um, and I should say, when I say scalable learning, most many executives, when I talk to them about this, think I'm talking about training programs. No, um, in, in this context, the learning that matters the most, that's the most valuable, is creating new knowledge, not just sitting there listening to somebody lecture and accessing existing knowledge. It's how do we create new knowledge in the work environment as we confront these new situations that we've never encountered before. That's the most powerful form of learning, learning through action in the workplace. So with obviously the current crisis underscoring, I suppose, an imperative for change, which I firmly believe in, what do you see some of the longer term forces globally that also are going to be need to be very much well considered now as we probably should turn more optimistically to when we can recover from this? Yeah, I think that uh, there are many forces at work, obviously, and that's part of the complexity. You mentioned systems where... We're in complex adaptive systems globally. Um, I think that uh, certainly one of the forces, and you'll forgive me since I'm in Silicon Valley, um, one of the forces is digital technology and the exponential price performance improvement of, uh, of digital technology. That's been playing out now again for decades, and it's creating infrastructures, global infrastructures that facilitate all this kind of connectivity. Another force that we see that's related but different is that increasingly we're moving from one way, again, we have a framing this shift in, in the big shift is 
we're moving from what we had as an industrial bargain, which in the industrial era, the bargain we had with customers was if you want something affordable, we can provide it to you, but it's got to be mass market standardized products and services. That's the only way we can make it affordable. And for decades, we as customers accepted that bargain. We said, okay, that's it. Now, increasingly, one of the forces we see playing out globally is that customers are getting much more powerful, number one. They have much more visibility into options and much more ability to shift from one vendor to another, and they're becoming much more demanding. They're saying, no, I don't want a mass market standardized product. Increasingly, they're saying, I want something that's tailored to my specific needs. And that's going to evolve with my needs over time as my needs evolve. That's a very different um, uh, challenge and opportunity for businesses is now moving to that, that notion of how do, we, how do we in fact address individual customer needs in a more flexible and evolving way. And I think, you know, I, I try not to use the word digital just as much as probably, John, you don't, because I think in many contexts, it's a very, uh, not only misused word, but I think when we keep tying that into this endless conversation about digital transformation, which, you know, my belief and, you know, more than just a belief is that they're largely these, these efforts keep failing and we're not really addressing why they keep failing, because I think we keep superficially you know, some people don't like the way of framing this, but really keep putting sort of digital lipstick on an analog pig. What do you think are the key implications then for the future of work from what we've just said? Yeah, I'll just say I, I agree completely with you on the digital transformation front. I, I cringe every time I hear the word because when, when I uh, push executives on what are they doing in terms of digital transformation, broadly, what they're doing is applying digital technology to do what they've always done faster and cheaper, more efficiently. It's still within the scalable efficiency model versus how can I apply this technology to fundamentally rethink how I serve people and what I, what's needed to create value in a more challenging environment. So completely agree. And I would say the implications for future of work are, 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 <laughs> very broad and, and deep. I think one way we have of framing this, again, is I, I gave a talk a number of years ago on how robots can restore our humanity. And the, the broad proposition I had was, if you think about the way work, most work is done, certainly in most large institutions today, it's tightly specified, highly standardized routine tasks. And if that's what work is, my belief is machines can do that so much more efficiently than we human beings can. And so let the machine take that work, let the technology take that work. But before you go to the next step, which again, in the scalable efficiency mindset that I run into, the reaction of most executives is how quickly can I automate uh, so, and how quickly can I uh, eliminate jobs? Because again, the focus is on efficiency, cutting cost. Our view is actually, no, the opportunity is you now have found capacity. All these workers 
who are previously consumed with these routine tasks. Now, how about redefining the work that they do? And rather than routine tasks, why not say the work that needs to be done is to address unseen problems and opportunities to create more value? Wherever you are in the organization, focus. The problem is workers have been so consumed with these routine tasks, they haven't even had the opportunity to see the problems and opportunities. Now, that can be their primary focus and not just seeing them, but addressing them and learning from that what really can create value in whatever context they're in. So anyway, I think that's a fundamental level. Everybody talks about the future of work. Our view is the most basic question is not being asked in the future of work, which is what should work be? What could work be for human beings? And if we start there, redefining work at that fundamental level, we can achieve much more value over time. You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you and your organization want to redesign work and drive experience, please reach out at rodneyhobbs.com. Now let's get back to the show. No, I absolutely agree, John. And uh, that was one of the comments that I saw from you that really led me to want to speak to you about this, because I think it is that fundamental that uh, and I do like, also like the notion that we need to challenge the assumptions that have created, uh, as some people refer to as kind of the operating system or the DNA of an organization, um, which again is even at that fundamental level to try and really shift the mindset out of that efficiency, you know, what, you know, past century logic into something that can then reframe and understand what the work needs to be. Cause I think, as you passionately said in a in a, a presentation that I saw from you, you know, there's no doubt that we will progress using technology and in particular, you know, the AI, the robots, the machine learning, the algorithms. And as you so eloquently put, a lot of the way that work has been designed to date is ideally much better suited for them to do that. And I think we've got to, you know, start, nearly growing up, pulling up the big pants, as we would say down here, to really discuss what is the role of humans around our creativity, our empathy, our human connection. So how how do we start redefining that work? How do we get organizations to start changing that mindset when the economy and, and the world is geared to, particularly from a US-centric perspective, a 90-day cycle where all we're doing is is short-termism, like being a goldfish. We just keep swimming around the same bowl. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think at the end of the day, they, I, I certainly want to acknowledge the pressure that, that uh, companies are under and the, the short-termism that's increasingly dominating their decision-making. But on the other side, the, the pressure is also mounting. And I think there's a growing sense on the part of executives that the traditional approaches are not yielding the results that they need. I mean, one of the ways I characterize scalable efficiency is it's a diminishing returns proposition. The more efficient you become, the longer and harder you have to work to get that next increment of performance improvement. And they're feeling that pressure. They're working harder and harder and getting less and less results. So the question is, what 
what can we do about it? And in this context, we're very strong proponents of targeted initiatives to learn faster, to start to learn about a new approach to work. And in this context, our recommendation is find a part of the company that actually um, could make a significant difference to the performance of the company as a whole. We have a whole framework that we call metrics that matter. And just to give you a quick example, you know, start it with financial metrics. And just as an illustration, a company may be facing challenges around revenue growth. Okay, that's important. Now let's go one level deeper into operating metrics and say, if revenue growth is a, ch- is a challenge, what's the issue at the operating level? And again, just to carry the example, it could be that there's a high level of customer churn. We're losing customers at a more rapid rate. and It's hard to grow revenue in that context. Okay, that's interesting. Now let's take it one more level down and, and look at what we call frontline metrics. Where in the front line could you make the, have the biggest impact on those operating metrics? And again, just to carry the example, it could be that in your customer call centers, um, customers are calling with problems and they're getting frustrated because they're not getting real answers to their problems. So they're leaving and that makes revenue growth more challenging. Okay, so now I have a very specific part of the company that I could target, call centers, nothing else. Let's just start with call centers and figure out how we could redefine work in call centers in a way that starts to deliver real impact and real value that starts to build confidence that this really could make a difference. But it's starting with a very targeted effort to learn and uh, demonstrate impact. No, that's good, John. I think in one of your other presentations, you made some comments about changing the way we organize ourselves into these smaller sort of, I, I don't think you called them teams. I think you might have referred to them more as working groups. Can you sort of expand a little bit on what, what your thinking is around how do we start actually reorganizing ourselves into start changing the way we work? Yeah, it's uh, again tied into our broader research around uh, scalable learning and what's required to learn faster. And one of the things that uh, we've, we've discovered is that no matter how smart any one person is, they are going to learn a lot faster as part of a small work group where they have deep trust-based relationships with each other and are committed to getting to higher and higher levels of impact in whatever area they're pursuing. And so we've increasingly come to believe that if you're really serious about accelerating learning and performance improvement, start by making sure that the workers are coming together in these small work groups. And in our experience, it's anywhere from three to 15 people at most uh, for these work groups. And they're really working together on a daily basis in terms of uh, joint output. I mean, you know, there are a lot of so-called teams in companies where they meet once a week and share what they've been doing. No, we're talking about work groups where you're acting together on a daily basis. But that's the environment, we think, where you can accelerate learning. And then the question is, what are the practices that those work groups could pursue to learn faster? And again, we have a whole set of research on that. And we've identified um, nine broad practices 
just a, as an illustration, one of the, uh, one set of practices has to do with what we call productive friction. These work groups, the participants in these work groups are constantly challenging each other. There's a lot of friction, but they're doing it with respect. They're not put, challenging each other to put each other down. They're challenging each other because they have a shared commitment to get to better and better outcomes and constantly challenging and questioning, is there a better way? Could we do it this way instead? And, you know, what about this? So ju- that's just one example of the kinds of practices that these work groups could pursue to accelerate learning. And I think as a <laughs> continuation of that, John, is that you have a view that really we've got to move away from this notion of business process redesign to, as you're using the word there, we've got to focus on what the practice is that needs to be redesigned rather than the process. Is that correct? Completely. I mean, again, uh, we tend to be a bit contrarian and for the past several decades in the business world, the, the, the mantra has been business process redesign. And Again, that's in the scalable efficiency world. That's all about how can we organize and, and design processes to do things faster and cheaper. And uh, our view is actually increasingly process, those tightly specified processes are becoming prisons. I mean, increasingly workers are being confronted with exceptions to those processes. And they're scrambling and trying to figure out how to handle those and get back to their assign tasks as quickly as possible versus, no, embracing the notion that increasingly workers are going to be confronting unexpected situations. And the key there is what are the practices they can use to see those situations and address them and deliver more value from them and learn in the process. It's Again, it's learning through action by confronting these unexpected situations. And I think you commented um, before that really, if we can, I suppose, utilize technology, and obviously from my background, being more the technologist, you know, I see technology as an enabler and certainly has a very key role to play in how we can assist and and connect people in what I see as the future evolution of the organization. And I think as you rightly indicated again in one of, in your research and your work, you know, we need to be able to focus the human effort, the human skills, if we refer to it that way, on this kind of the the unseen or unanswered needs or opportunities to create and unlock new value. Yes. Yeah. And, and part of it, again, there are many different components that come together. But part of it, too, is we've been a whole other research stream in our in our work is you know we we're big proponents of design thinking and design methodologies and um you know we've applied design thinking to redesign products and services for customers we've uh redesigned the customer experience so they get more value from the products and services the notion that we put on the table is how about taking that design thinking and applying it to ourselves in the work environment, how would we redesign the work environment from from the ground up if our primary design goal is to accelerate learning and performance improvement? What would that work environment look like? And I'm not just talking about the layout of the offices and the desks. I'm talking about virtual environment, you know, the 
digital platforms and tools that workers interact with, talking about management uh, systems like compensation and recognition, the entire worker experience. How would we redefine that, redesign that, if our goal was to accelerate learning and performance improvement? We think there's a lot of potential there. Absolutely. Who do you who do you call out if you if you have that are the leading examples? I mean, are there examples out there that are embracing a lot of these ideas in how they're shaping their organization moving forward? Yeah, you know, we've had a hard time finding companies that um, are doing this in a, a systematic way throughout the company. I mean, again, our research approach is basically case studies. So we go out and try to find examples. Um, we generally uh, will <laughs> refuse to look at a, a Silicon Valley company or a startup because, you know, most executives of traditional companies would dismiss those and say, well, that's not me. Um, so we look for examples in more traditional businesses. And one that's a, an interesting one that we've uh, written about in the context of the future of work and redefine, redefining work is a, a tomato processing company here in the United States. It's one of the largest tomato processing companies in the U.S. It's called Morningstar. And the very interesting, the CEO of that company has really systematically taken all his workers and given them the mandate of addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. And it's yielded significant performance improvement throughout the business because now all the workers, and I should say one of the reasons I like the example is these workers in his company are not, you know, PhD researchers they are high school graduates at best doing manual labor in factories or out in the field. Um, but all of them are motivated by this notion of our job is to find ways to do things faster and, and better uh, with better and more value delivered than uh, before. And they're coming up with creative. Uh, an example was a high school intern um, who was working on the factory assembly line who came up saw that the machinery for skinning the tomatoes before they got processed was not terribly effective in, in removing the skins. And so he came up with this whole new idea for what that machine could look like. He enlisted a bunch of engineers um, who, who could help him design that machine and then factory workers who could help figure out how it would work in the factory and came up with something that significantly improved the quality of the product. Which is a great example of, of innovation, which um, I think that organization also is quite unique because I, I believe they all write their own job descriptions every year and, and through agreements and feedback um, agree also on their salaries. Right. No, they've got a lot of innovative approaches to, uh, to managing the employees and, and the work that's being done. Absolutely. So to go back to the key point of where we are, and I suppose the opportunity, what's with this crisis, I think it is uh, an incredible opportunity for organizations to do a lot of what we've talked about. This is the time, I think, to completely reevaluate what work should be, because I don't expect from my view, and I'll be interested in yours, that 
there's a there's a Monday coming very soon where everybody just jumps back in their car and goes back yeah. to the office because you know unknowingly um in the sense that no one signed up for it we're just in the world's largest experiment to prove work is something you do it's not somewhere you go necessarily i know there are clearly exemptions to that scenario um you're not going to ask anybody to come to your house to do brain surgery but i think yeah. largely speaking going back to the the concept of of the knowledge work and the knowledge worker the people like us that manipulate information and engage and talk to people we can do that anywhere as we are um, right. how do you see or what do you see is the key opportunity that organizations need to seize from this uh, as that catalyst for change you know i think that it's um I worry at one level because a lot of the executives I talk to are, are the the word they tend to use is resilience. We need to be resilient. And, and when I press them on what they mean by that, basically they come back with, oh, it's about bouncing back. You know, we just need to get back to where we were. That's the key to success. And I, I view this, no, it's an opportunity to rethink at a fundamental level what are the opportunities and challenges that we've been facing and how could we address them at a more fundamental level rather than just going at looking at the symptoms? I mean, so one example is, you know, a lot of companies are finding out that their supply chains are actually extremely fragile, <laughs> not quite as reliable as they would have believed. Um, but, you know, using that to say, okay, let there's a clear issue with our supply chains. But let's go one level deeper and say, what are the underlying work practices, uh, technology architectures, et cetera, that we are going to need to rethink if we're going to be able to accommodate much more uh, agile or flexible supply networks over time? You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you're enjoying this podcast, Please ensure you subscribe, like, and share. I do think we're learning some lessons about, as you would call it, supply chains. I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of countries have lost the ability to make anything. And I think we're, you know, that realization has, has certainly, you know, come home in the last short period about what we don't have and who we rely on. And that no doubt, I hope, will open up different questions that might be answered differently than the approach going into this crisis. I also see and be interested on your comments, John, that I think, you know, only time will tell as we look back at this, you know, who managed through the crisis and who led. But I do see probably in the first initial response from a technology perspective of, of the notion of remote working, um, it's still very basic what we've done because really the people that were asked f to respond only really responded with what they knew what to do. So really it's just more people working in that remote context, which I don't see as a fundamental shift in any particular direction. I used to sit in back-to-back -back meetings in an office. Now I sit into, as most people have learned, Zoom being a verb. I now yeah. sit in these back-to-back -back Zoom meetings and, <laughs> and while there's some novelty to, you know, that uh, there's research saying it takes more e effort 
to be involved in a video conference than it is in a meeting. I, I do try to be more optimistic and hold out hope that organizations are listening and learning what they need to change rather than that, that as you stated, they're just going to bounce back like elastic to just the way it was. Everyone will come back to the office and we'll just resume normal programming. I don't think there is normal programming anymore. And I hope there isn't. No, absolutely. I think that, uh, again, on a more optimistic note, I see a lot of uh, executives are, are observing that some of their greatest success in this time of crisis are frontline workers who are taking their own initiative to improvise in the moment. They've, they're facing a situation nobody had anticipated, and they're using creativity, imagination, curiosity to figure out what could I do? How could I address this need that I, nobody had anticipated? And achieving quite a bit of success, but it's very localized and it's driven from the frontline initiative versus the management or leadership saying everybody needs to improvise. Um, and hopefully they'll come out of this saying, wow, maybe we should have everybody improvise and uh, redefine work at a fundamental level. It was funny, John. I was talking to someone yesterday and I said, uh, I'm a recovering IT person because when I started, obviously, without me realizing what I had learned was that I was standardizing and industrializing that, you know, the answer was you get a black one. The answer was yeah. no. Uh, the answer is you can't touch that, change that, um, because we're not going to let you. And that's why I like to think that I'm recovering and, uh, and I'm getting better to realize that we were so misguided by trying to use the device, you know, if I take the IT context, as the control point where what we need is an open system, one that, you know, we need to ensure that people can do their best work. And everybody works differently rather than the view that, you know, I spent many years hammering across the organization as we were asked to do, which was to paint everything black, make it one way. Um, And I'm not sure we've, we've all fully learned yet that, that we've been inflicted by that um, sort of illness, that there is one way, which again, feels very Taylorism that there is one best way. And I'm just going to argue how to get you to agree with me. Uh, not you personally, but the Taylorism in paying more money to give away our freedom. Um, I think we've got to, you know, sideline that. We've got to learn that we've we've outgrown that particular way of looking at what was the problem last industrial revolution, because that's not the problem we have in this industrial revolution. What are your final thoughts on how we break down that challenge and what are i suppose for our listeners things that they could do what could they take away from this discussion and not put that on that high shelf where it's another couple of interesting people talking all that theory which is disconnected from the real world where right. you know we have to get up and you know in an australian way we just have to get shit done and as i had someone once say to me yeah that's all really interesting what you're saying rodney and it's people like you, well, I've got to go back and I've got to do more with less and my organization is changed out. Yep. No, I, I think it's challenging for sure. I don't want to suggest that this is going to be an easy transition. I, 
I do think it, we've become strong proponents of an approach that we call zoom out, zoom in. Uh, and it basically challenges, again, the short-termism to say, no, the, the people who are going to be most successful in a rapidly changing world are going to make the effort to zoom out. And when we're talking about 10 to 20 years and look ahead and see what what is our marketer industry likely to look like at that point and what are the implications for the company we need to become. Uh, very challenging for sure, but if you don't have a sense of direction, you're never going to be able to focus in the short term. But the zoom in then says, okay, once you have that sense of where you're headed, focus on the next six to 12 months and say, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three that we could pursue in the next six to 12 months that would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement towards that longer term destination. And then focusing on learning from those short term initiatives. So you continually refine your longer term view of that zoom out view and your, your short term initiatives. So it's a continual learning process and it's matching both the sense of direction, long term direction with a sense of what needs to be done today to learn from that. And we we're believers. Ultimately, one of the books that I wrote, the subtitle was small moves smartly made can set big things in motion. So it's yes, small moves but they need to be smartly made. And in this context, we mean in the context of a sense of where you're headed, what the big opportunity is in the future, and then learning from those small moves and scaling them over time in ways that deliver more and more value to the company. No, I think that's a very eloquent way of looking at it. Um, I'm being very cheeky now just to ask two final points because you're being incredibly generous uh, generous, uh, with your time and your expertise uh, to share with us today. What's your views on agile? Um, Because I, uh, my, my personal view just to declare my position is it seems that a lot of organizations have grasped this as being a silver bullet and it's, it's certainly not. It it certainly has a role to play, but I certainly don't see it as a new operating system as some people are heralding it in as the new ways of working uh, it's a way of working in a particular context, in a particular system. And uh, I think we've lost our way on that. What's what's your views on, on Agile, small A and big A? <laughs> uh, how many hours do we have? I, I think, uh, you know, the challenge is there are many different definitions and approaches to Agile. But I would say as a generalization, I, I share your concern. I my experience, at least the way most executives that I talk to uh, frame Agile, it's about being flexible, you know, being able to respond to whatever's happening in the moment. And for sure, that's a needed capability. But just responding quickly to whatever's happening in the moment, you're going to lose any sense of focus and you're going to be spreading yourself way too thin across too many initiatives. Our belief is that The key to success, again, is this sense of learning faster and accelerating performance improvement, not just being flexible in the moment, but getting to more and more impact over time with a sense of what's the impact that matters, what's the direction you're pursuing. So our our sense is that's not really explicitly part of the agile framework in most of the companies that we, we talk to, but needs to be. 
I like uh, Dave Snowden who tells a, a story about a or- large organization. I won't mention it, but I, I believe it's an Australian one that success was all about being agile, but they were delivering waterfall projects. So they just called them one year sprints. Yeah. <laughs> and, prob- and probably the last thing, uh, John, and again, really do appreciate your time today is maybe not a great way to end on on more what I think will be a negative note, but I think is important for our listeners to to gain your insight. If we don't heed or take this this catalyst and the imperative that we've talked about today and and we don't adapt and and turn ourselves into more of a learning uh, organization, what what is in front of us if we don't do that? What's your prediction there? <laughs> well, it's actually some of the analysis we did around the, what we, again, what we call the big shift. And our, our view is it's actually been playing out for decades. And we, we looked in the United States at the performance of public companies, all public companies in the U.S. from 1965, a few years before digital technology really came into the business world until today. And we took as the measure of performance return on assets. It turns out from 1965 until today, for all public companies in the U.S., the return on assets has collapsed. It's gone down by 75%. And it's been a long, sustained erosion over five decades. And the real challenge is where do we go from here? Just squeezing harder, which is, again, the response in the scalable efficiency world, isn't going to deliver the results. And so the, the, the view we have, certainly, if, if you just continue trying to do what you're doing today and doing it harder and faster, you're going to be on that slope down to zero um, and increasingly marginalized. The opportunity is to make this shift and address the expanding value creation opportunities that are now available. But it requires a fundamentally different approach to work and how you organize the business. I think we've all experienced probably that that execution of that view, which is sort of cutting and just continually cutting until you eventually hit bone because there's That's nothing right. more you can cut or optimize. And I think that really is more a crisis of leadership more than anything else. You know, we need the leaders to lead and not just manage that situation until it becomes fatal. But uh, maybe not the brightest of notes to to sort of end on, John, but um, (laughs) it's been an absolute uh, privilege to have a a glimpse into the research and your experience and your insights uh, today. Um, How best can people find you, find the great work and some of the research that you've touched upon uh, in today's show? Well, there are many, many ways Uh, we... we, uh I run the Center for the Edge. Uh, We're unlike many research centers. All the research that we do is freely available. We don't charge for it. So if you just uh, go and search online for Center for the Edge and John Hagel, you'll get to a website that has all the research available for download. Um, And in addition, I have my own website, johnhagel.com, where I have a blog post and can... uh, access some of my thinking there. And then I'm very active on social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. So you can find me many places. 
Oh, fantastic, uh, John. And again, uh, very much appreciate you coming on the show. Look forward to uh, that next book that you uh, that you no doubt have in the works and uh, very much appreciate uh, you making the time today to be on the show. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share some of these perspectives. No, thank you, John. And for our listeners today, thank you again for joining us for another episode of the Business of Experience, and we'll look forward to catching you in the future.